So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel, the 28th chapter. We're going to be looking at a passage that's very straightforward and yet has lots and lots of questions for us. Um, My plan this morning is just to sort of do an overview of uh, chapter 28, uh, deal with just uh, the, the basics and uh, we can go from there. But First Samuel chapter 28. First um, Samuel chapter 28. And when you have found that place, if you're physically able to do so, and let me invite you to stand with me one more time as we honor the ring of God's holy and written word. First Samuel, the 28th chapter, hear the word of the Lord that's given to us this morning. And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, Know you assuredly that you shall go out with me to battle, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Surely you you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore will I make you keeper of my head forever. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards, or that's the necromancers, out of the land. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw that the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart was great, greatly trembled. And when Samuel, I'm sorry, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by the prophets. Then said Saul to his servants, Seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that has a familiar spirit at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and he came and he went, and two, with, and two other men with him, and came to the woman by night and said, I pray you, divine to me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up, whom I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Behold, You know what Saul has done, how he has cut off all those who have familiar spirits and the wizards, again, the necromancers, out of the land. Wherefore then lay you a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, there shall no punishment happen to you for this thing. And then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up to you? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel... She cried with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Be not afraid, for what, have, what saw you? And the woman said to Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. And he said to her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man comes up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped to his, with his face to the ground, and he bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, and the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, and answers me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I shall do. Then said Samuel, Why then do you ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done to him as he spoke by me. For the Lord has rent the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, even to David. Because you obeyed not the voice of the Lord, nor executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore has the Lord done this thing to you this day. 
Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shall you and your sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Then Saul fell immediately all along on the earth, and and was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all all the day, nor all the night. And the woman came to Saul, and Saul that he was sore troubled, and said to him, Behold, your handmaid has obeyed your voice, and have put my life in your hand. And I have hearkened to your words, which you have spoke to me. Now therefore I pray you, hearken, hearken thou also to, me, to the voice of your handmaid, and let me set a morsel of bread before you to eat, and that you may have strength, and that you may go your way. But he refused, and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, compelled him, and he hearkened to their voice, so he arose from the earth and sat upon the bed. And the woman had a, f- had a fat calf in the house, and she hasted and killed it and took flour and kneaded it and did bake unleavened bread thereof. And she brought it before Saul and before his servants, and they did eat. And they rose up and went away that night. Let's pray. Father, this morning we look at a passage that is um, very straightforward and yes, very troubling. Uh, God, many things here are not explained, just simply stated in the text. So give us wisdom, we pray, as we take up this this text, as we deal with this text before us. May your name be glorified. May you aid us and help us, guide us, direct us. So now, Holy Spirit, by your empowerment, we may better understand what is here for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, desperation can be a very powerful tool. It can be a very powerful tool in our hands because in desperation we seek answers. We, we seek to have knowledge. We seek out knowledge. We seek out to understand things that we normally wouldn't understand because the times that we now find ourselves in, we now see that we are in need to understand things. But desperation can also be a very bad thing because desperation can drive us to do things that... Um, w- Otherwise, we would have never thought of, would have never, would have never entered into our minds. Then again, desperation at times does have a way of revealing our character, who we're trusting, what we're, what we're trusting, what we, what we are thinking we're, what we're thinking we're trusting, and what we're actually trusting, oftentimes can be two very different things. I can say, oh, I trust the Lord, and yet when desperation strikes, when I'm in the throes of complete and utter chaos. My character ultimately is revealed and my trust for who I'm actually trusting is revealed before me because I begin to then seek anything and everything but the Lord. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to show you the dangers of desperate times, the dangers of of desperation and of desperate times. Um, You know, Charles Dickens wrote uh, in one of his books, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Well, you could leave out the first part for this text. It was not the best of times. It was the worst of times for the nation of Israel. So this morning, what I want to show you, though, is the dangers, the dangers of desperation, the dangers of not seeking, uh, rather abandoning the Lord. And I think it's rather before us. And so let me show you the first part, the first point that I want to make this morning. It's found in verses 1 and 2. And that is simply this, beware the tyranny of desperation. Beware the tyranny of desperation. You say, well now, wasn't Saul desperate? Yes, but so was David. You say, well now, wait a minute. Well, how was David desperate? 
Well, uh, desperation raised uh, David, uh, raised in David, uh, a fear as we looked at la- uh, as we looked at in chapter twenty-seven of trying to get away because he surely was going to die. Remember, David said in his heart, "I am going to die by the hand of Saul." Well, desperation, uh, Saul's desperation to kill David has now raised desperation in David's life so that he seeks out to run away. But not just in David, but also in Saul. You see, the desperation here is raised in Saul. And the writer here in 1 Samuel intends fully for us to understand this. Because he says, now notice this, and it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. Now, see that. And, and, and even go further. And Achish said to David. So notice here. There are two things Saul is automatically dealing with that the text points us to. What's the first thing? Well, the first thing is a militaristic enemy, right? The Philistines, right? They, they were always a constant uh, thorn in the side of Israel. And, and they are much stronger than Israel, and Saul knows this. Saul has been chasing uh, David and has really, has really uh, neglected his proper duties of protecting his nation. But not only that, but where is, who is with this militaristic enemy? David. Saul's right-hand man, militaristically, uh, there is only, we, we only know of one time that Saul faced the Philistines apart from having David as his commanding officer. And so we know that this has raised the fact that now David, that not now only is Saul facing the Philistines, he is also facing a second enemy. Two enemies, in his view, have now joined. Now, we understand the bigger picture that Saul and Achish and even David didn't quite understand yet. David seems to be seeking the best for the enemies of Israel, when in reality he isn't. He is deceiving them. But to Saul, this is a combined threat. He now has, on the one hand, a, a strong military a nation that is constantly seeking to destroy them and push them out of the, the land. But he now has a traitor on his hands. His former commanding officer is before him with his enemies. Until now, Saul has only faced one of the two of these threats. But now, he is facing both threats. And this combined threat is Saul's worst nightmare. This combined threat now seeks to shake Saul to the core. And it does. And he has an anxiety-driven reaction. You see, one of, one, of the, one of the worst things that can ever happen is when we choose to react instead of acting. It's always important that as much as possible, we need to be able to act, particularly for a king. It would be very important for a king to be able to act instead of react. But here, Saul, in his fear, because Saul has lost his mind, literally, Saul now simply reacts. It is not good. No, no military commander, or hopefully every military commander, would tell you that it's important to not only have a reaction plan, but to have an action plan. And Saul had, it appears, only a reaction plan, which led to the twist Saul being left twisting in the wind, and Saul literally twisting in his mind. And the narrator sets this up on purpose. Saul is now faced with David, and now faced with the Philistines, What will Saul do? Will Saul repent? Will Saul return to the Lord? Will Saul seek the Lord earnestly? Will Saul Saul just seek to 
continue on in his ways. And isn't that true for us, believer, more often than not? I mean, we're, when we face the enemies of our life, the enemies of our soul, sin, Satan, though the world systems as they come crouching in upon us, as they tempt us to sin, aren't, aren't we oftentimes like Saul, we, we are left instead of seeking the Lord in earnest and seeking the Lord in, in perhaps even repentance when we need to, or even just seeking the Lord's counsel, we often find ourselves twisting in the wind because we are trying to find a way for us to act, us to react, us to find a solution, us to do something, when in reality the Lord says, no, 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 you need to be trusting me. So we don't need to be too hard on Saul here, because in reality, we all have a Saul within us. We all, if we're not careful, find ourselves in a point to where if we're not careful and not trusting in the Lord, we abandon the Lord and his counsel, we abandon his people, we abandon what is best and wise, and we run after the things that we can do, that we can do. And this is what Saul did, and anxiety drives us to do all kinds of things at times. And this is why Jesus tells us to not be anxious for anything, right? And this is why, this is why Paul counsels us in Philippians, but by everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds. And so we're not to be like Saul. We're not to be allowing our anxiety to drive us to react to every little thing. And I understand that, that, that this can be tyrannical at times. Desperation and anxiety can lead to the tyranny of what seems like the immediate. Where it seems like I need to immediately have an answer. I need to immediately know how to respond. In reality, we often don't. We often don't. It's not wrong for us to, to withdraw and to say, wait, maybe I need to spend some time thinking this through. But the desperation then raised, as I said, not just in Saul, but also in David. David has overplayed his hand, right? And he set himself in a rather precarious situation. The only other thing I really want to say here about this before we move on to the second point is, notice in verse 2 here of chapter 28, it says, and David said to Achish, surely you shall know your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore will I make my keeper of my head forever. Therefore I'll make you my keeper of my head forever. And the King James is, 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 does a fantastic job here. That's literally what the word, the phrase it means, keeper of my head. Literally the, the guardian of my head, my head bodyguard, right? But think about this. Think about the irony that God's word is setting up, okay? Because oftentimes we pass over this stuff. But think about the irony here. Achish is the king of Gath. Gath is the hometown of Goliath. David took Goliath's head, and now Goliath's king is now asking David to keep his head. The irony is thick here in the text. And it is an amazing reality that I don't think that any Philistine should ever be seeking to ask David to watch out for his head. And yet that's exactly what Akish does. It's exactly what Akish does. And Akish is completely gullible. He's a fool. He's very foolish. And he, 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 doesn't, he, he wants David to do it. And, and, and don't misunderstand here what David is saying when he says, Now you'll see what 
David will do. Now you see what I can do. Well, what exactly is David going to do? David keeps this very, very loosey-goosey, if you will. He doesn't really say anything. He's a good politician at this point, right? It's like, yeah, you know, you, you know I'll, I'll get the job done. Well, what job exactly are you going to do there, buddy? Well, you, you'll just wait and see, right? Well, then the second point is here, not just the tyranny of desperation, but also the des- that desperation often leads to further desperation. This is what the text tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And it simply tells us this by the phrase this. Now Samuel was dead. That's all it says. Now Samuel was dead. This is a reoccurring theme, though. The, 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 the Bible, the, God wants us to understand and feel the desperation of the times. This is a recurring theme. 1 Samuel 25, 1, already said this. Saul's last connection to God was severed in Saul's death. And it's a rather strange statement because in opposition to this, now notice this. At the very end, notice this. It says, so he's dead, and we're like, okay, we understand that. But then, the, but then God puts something very interesting here. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and wizards or necromancers out of the land. What does that have to, what does one have to do with another? Well, really, it's a, it's a, it's a telling of what is to come. It's not necessarily readily obvious. Uh, maybe it's a throwback to Saul's happier days when he was honoring the Lord. Maybe, maybe. But understand this. Um, Saul had been obedient. In Leviticus 19.31, for instance, it says, Do not turn to mediums or familiar spirits. Do not seek after them or to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Or Leviticus 26. And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. A man or a woman who is a medium, that's a necromancer, or has familiar spirits, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Or Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them, that is the nations, out before you. And so it is a clue of what is coming. It's a tale for what is coming. Because Saul is facing an aggressive enemy. Saul is facing a double enemy in David and in the Philistines. The armies have gathered. This is a desperate time. God is clearly wants us to see and understand here in verse 5 when it says, And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. That doesn't even begin to grasp what Saul was feeling at this point. The understanding here is literally Saul had no strength in him. He was so terrified. Saul had nothing in his strength at all because he was so scared of the threat he was facing. And because of that, Saul's overwhelming fear led him, led him to make very rash bold, uh, well, very unwise decisions. You see, to this point, 
Saul had been the one who was not trembling. Saul hadn't been trembling before the time of his baggage. He was found among the baggage, among the camels, when he was coronated. But now, instead of the people trembling, it is Saul trembling. And it's Saul, the one who is, who is his world is collapsing. Right? Saul's world is closing in on him and it's collapsing. And, you know, again, I would simply remind us of the tyranny of, of desperation. Because when our world collapses, when our world seemed to all but collapse upon us and around us, what we're left with is really what we're trusting in. What we're left with is really what we're trusting. And now, 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 when I say that, <coughs> excuse me, I don't mean to, to say that, that we don't have, you know, emotions and feelings and we're not, we're not truly, uh, you know, feeling the weight of what we're going through. That, that's not the point. But, but when, when God pulls the proverbial rug out from under us and he takes everything away from us, is he enough? That's the question we must ask and answer. When God removes everything, even his hand of protection from us, when God pulls out from among us all of our rugs, our our safety blankets, our safety nets, when God pulls everything away from us and he says, trust me, will we say, you are enough? Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Is that where we are? Because that wasn't where Saul was. No, that's not where Saul was at all. Rather, Saul was being driven mad by the silence of God. There's a, there's a great song I love by, by a guy by the name of Andrew Peterson called The Silence of God. And in the, in the song, he says, it's enough to drive a man crazy it's an, it'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. And it's difficult when God is silent, but for Saul, Saul had rejected God over and over and over and over again. And Saul had literally been driven insane by God's silence to him. But yet Saul should never have been ultimately shocked by this. I mean, it was prophesied. Samuel prophesied this in 1 Samuel 8, 18. There's no, there's, I mean, Saul had slaughtered the priests of Nob, right? So we're talking about, we're talking about like 80-some priests, 85 priests. But they're not just the priests, but they're famous. Like Saul slaughtered probably well over 200, between 200 and 500 people. Saul cannot be shocked. Hey, God, I killed all your priests and all their families. I slaughtered all the innocent little children to go along with it. Why aren't you answering me? I mean, Saul shouldn't be shocked. But he is. God's silence is deafening here. And it even says he doesn't answer. God doesn't answer him by the prophets or by um, Urim. Why? Why didn't he answer him by Urim or Thummim? We didn't answer him because he didn't have any priests left. I mean, there were literally no priests left. The only priests left in service was found with David. Not with Saul, but with David. But he didn't answer him by dreams either. He didn't answer him at all. 
And brothers and sisters, let me, let me encourage you that when God seems silent and all the world above you, all of heaven above you seems like a frown, God has not abandoned you. God's providential smile is still there. Though you may not see it, though you may not feel it, though you may not sense it, God has not abandoned you. His providence still smiles upon you. God's providential grace is still extended to you. Trust him. Trust him. But I'll say this thirdly, desperation leads to desperate action as well. Because Saul does something crazy at this point. What does Saul do? Well, Saul decides that since God isn't going to answer him, he's going to go find someone who can. And it even shows us that, 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 that Saul's inquiry of the Lord was not sincere. Saul wasn't seeking the Lord's answer to truly know what the Lord wanted him to do. Saul was seeking the Lord's answer because Saul, didn't, Saul wanted to know the outcome of the battle. He didn't care ultimately about God. He didn't ultimately care what God had to say. I mean, he had proven that over and over again already. Saul could care less. Saul's inquiry was completely insincere. All he wanted to know was to have some knowledge. He just needed a little bit of knowledge. He just needed a little bit of understanding here. It wasn't sincere. And so Saul says, I've got a great solution. Let's go find a necromancer. Let's go find someone who speaks to the dead and has a familiar spirit. We'll talk more about that in just a minute, what those, what those people are and what they do. But God, needless to say, as I've already said, the Lord had already clearly forbidden those pagan practices. God had clearly forbidden them. Um, God, had, God had said no to them. God had said absolutely not. So what is a necromancer? Right? What, what is necromancy? Well, simply put, they're individuals who, who claim the ability to contact the dead either by serving as intermediaries uh, through whom the dead speak or rousing the dead so that they can speak for themselves. They can appear and speak for themselves. That's literally what, um, what necromancy is. That's what uh, the witch here is. She, she's not a, she, she probably was a witch in the sense of we think of witches through things like you know, uh, reading tea leaves or um, bones and things like that. But she also would have been a necromancer or speaking for or someone who was able to contact the dead. And they've been banned by the Torah very clearly. Exodus 22, 18, 1931, Leviticus 19, 26 through 32, Leviticus 26, Leviticus 20, 27, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 11. And Saul, even at one time, had banned them and murdered most of them. He had killed most of them. He had slaughtered them um, because uh, by, by rights of, of, uh, of kingship and purging the land. Uh, and had every right to do that under God's, uh, God's authority to, to, to purge the land of anyone and everyone. But it not it interesting that this action, more than any other, is the reason why, is, is, is one of the main reasons why God ultimately kills Saul. You say, now wait a minute, God has already said that he is going to take, the, take, the, uh, take everything away from Saul. Yes, he did. 
But go with me, if you will, to First Chronicles 10. Go to First Chronicles 10. First Chronicles chapter 10, it says this in verse 13. So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one who had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. So while God had certainly promised to take Saul's kingdom away, it wasn't until Saul sought out the necromancer that God killed Saul through the Philistines. And it's interesting here as we read the text that it seems all too interesting, doesn't it, that, that, that here they are, he's seeking the Lord's counsel, the Lord's will, right? Uh, not sincerely, but he's seeking it. Saul, he is here. And all of a sudden he says, hey guys, I've got a great idea to his counsel, to his war counsel. I've got a great idea. I'm going to go find a necromancer and we're going to go, we're going to go, uh, we're going to go ask her to t- call up Samuel and we're going to ask Samuel what we should do. And the next words out of the servant's mouth is, hey guys, hey king, I know somebody. You know somebody. How do you know somebody? Like, there's something desperately wrong here that God has revealed in his text here. And I think it is to prove that the king was not only compromised personally, but that the king's entourage, the king's council was, was, was in fact corrupted. It was in fact very corrupted. There was corruption around the king. But notice this, that this, this guy who says, Let's, there is this woman I know of, I can take you to her, where does she live? Indoor was north of Shunem. You say, well, who cares about Shunem? Oh, okay, well, let's, let's talk about this. It says, and the Philistines, verse 4 of chapter 28, and the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in... Shunem. This woman was in, not only had familiar, had, had, had forbidden knowledge, she was also in territory that lay well within enemy territory and among enemy lines. This king, even by doing this, would have risked his very life to attempt to visit her. And yet he does. He disguises himself in verse 8, tries to avoid detection. But I want you to simply notice this, that the text points us to twice. The timing, darkness, darkness. It is, a, it is used to show Saul's state and what is happening in Israel. And ultimately, it, it leads to, to him pursuing things he should not have been pursuing. And it's interesting here in verse 20, chapter 28 and verse 9, and it, says, and it says, listen to this, and it says, Then the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off all these familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then lay you a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, there shall no punishment happen to you for this thing. Isn't it amazing how we often justify our sin? Well, I need to know an answer. 
Well, I need to know this. Well, I need to know that. Well, I need to, I need to have something. I need to do something. I need to do this because, I mean, after all, I mean, if I want to advance, if I want to do this, if I want to do that, ultimately, <laughs> with my goals, then I have to sin. Right? I have to sin. I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked to. Listen, and I hate to say this, but I will tell you this. When I sit and I talk to most young men or young women, and I've talked to several in my life, and they begin asking me questions. Pastor, I just don't know if I believe that. Here is the follow-up question I always ask them. What is their name? What is their name? You say, well, why would you ask people that question? Not just young men and young women. I mean adults. What is their name? Because you know what is going on? What is going on is they want to justify that they want to have a relationship with somebody that they know is wrong. Boyfriend, girlfriend, they want to marry somebody they know it's wrong for them to marry. They want to have an illicit relationship with someone. They're married to somebody else, but they want to have an illicit relationship. All of a sudden, they're like, I don't know if I believe this. What is their name? What's their name? What's their name? Because we always try to justify our sin. Always. Constantly justifying our sin. And this is what Saul is doing. This is what Saul does. Not just here. God isn't speaking to me, so I've got to go find a necromancer. Right? But even to Samuel that we'll later see when he says, Hey, Samuel, I'm sorry for bothering you, but God's not talking to me. I don't know what to do. Nobody, I've tried every which way I know, so I thought I'd just find you and ask you. And we often do this. We often do this. Even if it's not somebody, it's something. My boss has asked me to do something that I know is unethical, so I've got to find a way to do this. So, I, you know, if I can just jettison my beliefs long enough to do this, then it'll be okay. God will forgive me. God understands. God does right. We, we, we try every which way to justify our sin that we can possibly think of. <coughs> and Saul does this exact same thing. But notice this. Who rebukes him? Not his own men, not not his own Israelite men, not his own war council men, not the men who should have his best at heart. (coughs) No, they say, hey, uh, we know somebody. Who rebukes him? You say, well, I don't see anybody ultimately rebuking him until Samuel. Well, look at verse 9. And the woman said to him, behold, you know what Saul has done. She's quoting Saul's own actions to him. She doesn't know it's Saul. She has no clue it's Saul. But she says, hey, Saul. Hey, disguised guy. You know what the king has done? Saul, all along the way, has had an opportunity to repent. In Samuel's, before Samuel's death, Samuel, Samuel told him to repent. 
told him what was going to happen. God, all along the way, gave Saul opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. Even here, God is using a pagan to tell the king of God's own people, what are you doing? Do you know what you're asking me to do? You have outlawed, she doesn't know this, but you have outlawed this yourself, king. And it's interesting because when we have kids, it's interesting that we find our own sins out through our own children at times, isn't it? They often remind us that it's easy for us to act one way or to say one thing and act another way. And this is why I think kids are meant for our sanctification, quite honestly. But it is true that God has, God provides us with opportunities after opportunities after opportunities when we are traveling down a dangerous, steady path, God comes to us over and over and over and over again. And he puts these blocks in our way and he says, you still have an opportunity. You can repent. Repent. Stop. Repent. Stop. Repent. Stop. Repent. Stop. Repent. Stop. Repent. Okay. Okay. And that's exactly what God does with Saul. And truthfully, he does that with us at times as well. Truthfully, at times, there are times when God just ultimately says to us, you will not repent, then you will taste the fruits of your non-repentance. But I will say to us, because I don't want to just give you law here this morning and say, well, you know, do better. I do want to remind us, though, this is the beauty of grace. This is the beauty of Christ. And we're not going to get through the text, the whole text this morning. I thought we would. I know you're shocked. Me too. I don't know why I had a brain problem that thinking we would. But the reality is that, that for us who are in Christ, God does give us grace. And he gives us grace upon grace so that when we are on a trajectory that we should not be, This is why things such as the word and prayer and the local assembly are so important for us. It is so important for us to have brothers and sisters around us to encourage us, to help us, so that we are able to be called to repentance. What a horrible place Saul was in. To have no one around him but a pagan woman. A pagan necromancer in the end. Excuse me. A pagan necromancer in the end is the only one that he has who says, stop the madness, Saul. And brothers and sisters, it is imperative that you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we, are, we place ourselves underneath the authority of the local church We place ourselves under the authority of Christ. We place ourselves under the authority of Scripture. We place ourselves under the authority of of our elders and our pastors. We place ourselves there because we want to understand and grow because I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. And at times we can get, we can get sidetracked and we can get sideways and we can get out of God's will. And we need those in our lives calling to us, saying to us, what are you doing? Stop. Repent. 
Because Satan's greatest strategy for the believer is to woo us off to ourselves and to kill us there. Not physically, I under, you understand, but, but to kill us there. And brothers and sisters, if you have strayed, let me say this. If you have strayed, repent. Return to Christ. Don't look to your own efforts. Don't look to what you've done and how well God may try to like you. You are as loved today as you will ever be. Which I know blows your mind, right? So I have sinned and God still loves me? Yes. Repent. Turn to Christ. Repent and turn to Christ. Christ is our great high priest who has never failed us. He has never, he has never once failed us. Turn to Christ. Repent and trust Christ this morning for your for repentance. Repent and trust Christ. Trust his work. Trust his, trust his, <clears throat> his work on our behalf. Look to Christ. Trust Christ. Do not waver, but turn and flee back to Christ. He is not, he is not a begrudging, he is not a begrudging savior. He is not a begrudging friend. He is not a begrudging uh, judge, he is a kind and just king who loves his sons and daughters. And just because we stray does not mean he loves us any less, but we are called upon to repent. Let us turn to Christ. Let us not allow the tyranny of our desperation to lead us further from Christ, but to, but to be used as an opportunity for us to flee to Christ. Remembering the mercy and the grace of God for us in Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, we thank you for our time in the Word. Um, God, I, though there's still much left to be discussed and talked about, my prayer is that you would help us and enable us not to fall to the tyranny of desperation, not to fall to the tyranny of, 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 of needing to react but Lord, help us to trust you. And Lord, when we fall into sin, whatever sin that may be, God, may we flee to Christ looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh God, please help us. Help us not to flee further into sin, but to flee away from sin and into Christ. God, may you help us that we would say this morning that Christ is enough. That you are enough. And if you are not enough for us this morning, then help us to lay aside all of our idols and let us come unburdened and unshackled by the power of your Spirit to Christ. Oh God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.